And let's open with a word of prayer. Father, truly our desire this evening is to have a passion for Thee. To be set on fire. Even as we have seen in Galatians the last several weeks, to be walking in the Spirit. Bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Loving one another. Father, we praise You for all that You have done for us. All that You have given us. We praise You that You have given us Your Spirit within us to work. I pray that we would be open to His leading, to His working. We would, as the song says, be lit on fire for Christ. We'd have a passion for Thee. Even this evening as we look um, to Ephesians and to Matthew, see the church and we glory in who You are and what You're doing. And may You be honored in all that we do. In Jesus' name, Amen. You've probably noticed, you've hopefully noticed by now that we have a new theme for the year, a new verse, Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. It says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. I've kind of picked a theme for the year, and the theme is the church. And I've picked this passage specifically because as Paul is, is going through this, he comes to this point in verse 21 where he says, To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations. May that be our desire, to bring glory to God in the church. What's interesting about this passage is that it leads into chapter 4 where he then calls us to unity. Uh, he goes on but, in verse 7, but to each one, each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led, captives, he, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended, what does it mean? But he was also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Verse 11, and he himself gave some apostles and prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. It's a passage that leads right into a discussion on the church. Just a few verses earlier in chapter 2, verse 19. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So our theme for the year is going to be the church. And we're going to be working through it this year, focusing on what is the church? How do we bring glory in the church to Christ with all, to all generations? As we come to Ephesians 3, verses 20 to 21, you notice it's at the end of chapter 3. It's, it's, it's a benediction. A declaration of blessing. Almost like a prayer that comes at the end of a thought that then leads Paul into this, this prayer, this desire. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly above, abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
And this benediction then leads right into chapter 4 where he continues on with this thought about the church. This evening, we're going to be in Matthew 16, 13-20. We're going to look at the church promised. Starting in this passage here in Ephesians, seeing the church, we're going to then jump to Matthew 16 now. I invite you to turn there. Matthew 16, 13-20. The church promised. What we'll see is that the power of the church is in the Lord of the church. It is His church. Matthew 16, 13, 20. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus the Christ. It's probably a familiar passage as we come to Matthew 16. It's a passage that we've heard, many of us, time and time again. What's interesting to consider, though, as we come to this passage, verses 13 to 20 of chapter 16 of Matthew, In this passage, we have incredible insight that is given to Peter. But what is striking is in the verses leading up to this, in verses 1 to 12, the amazing lack of spiritual insight that the disciples portray. See, in the first 12 verses, uh, it's almost comical if it wasn't sad. Starting in verse 5, of chapter 16, now when his disciples had come to the other side, they had forgotten to take bread. Right? They'd forgotten bread. Their mind is on food. Their mind is on bread. They're they are hungry. They've forgotten to take bread. And Jesus said to them, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verses 1 to 4, they've run into these Sadducees and these Pharisees. They've had a run in with them. So here Christ warns them, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have taken no bread. Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, O you little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not understand or remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you took up, nor the seven loaves of the 4,000 and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that it did not speak speak to you concerning bread, but to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, of the doctrine of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's almost funny, as I mentioned, if it wasn't sad. Their mind is on bread, they're hungry, and Jesus uses this opportunity. He says, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Their mind immediately jumps again to the bread. We don't have bread. I'm not talking about bread. How have you missed this? 
Don't you see I'm not talking about bread? You've seen me turn, turn bread into more bread. You've seen these miracles. Bread's not the issue. And he has to explain to them, I am saying beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, of the Sadducees. Then they understood. Oh, I see now. And so it's contrasted with this incredible lack of spiritual insight that we then go into verses 13 to 20 where we see the incredible spiritual insight of Simon Peter. So we've just come out of this episode and in verse 13 we see Jesus' question. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, this helps to, to put us on a map. Those of you who are kind of visual, like me, like I can, you know, when, when I have a place in mind, I can view that. I can better picture what's going on. That's where they are. They're in Caesarea Philippi. It's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee on the slopes of Mount Hermon. Caesarea Philippi was a, was a fairly large, bustling city. But at this place, there was a spring. There was a cliff, and there was a spring that came out of this cliff. And there was a major shrine here to the god Pan. In fact, this entire area was kind of seen as a, as a pagan stronghold. And so this is where they are. They're in this area where, where paganism runs, rules, and this is where he asks his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Who do men say that I am? Who do men say that I am? What a loaded question that that is. The, word, the, the name, the Son of Man, was often used by Jesus to emphasize his humanity, his ministry. So he looks his disciples in the eye and he said, who do men say that I am? And then you have Peter's answer. Verse 14, so they said, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Clearly, people recognize that there's something unique about Jesus. There's something special about this man. Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. Some say Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. They acknowledge that he is sent by God, and yet they don't go far enough in their admission. And so he says to them, but who do you say that I am? I can almost picture them kind of hoping that he wouldn't go there. Have you ever been in a group of people and they're kind of standing around, they're talking about something, some shared experience that you're not a part of? And you're kind of laughing along with them, and they say, what do you think? And you're like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> you weren't expecting them to call on you. I can almost picture that here. He says, who do men say that I am? And, and look at verse 14. So they said, they're all answering. They're, they're, they're pitching out answers. Well, some say John the Baptist. Well, I heard a guy over here say Elijah. Well, this group of people said Jeremiah. Well, when we were over there, they said some of the other prophets. 
They're, they're throwing out things. And then Jesus stops and he says, now who do you say that I am? He personalizes it. He calls them out. They can't get out of this one. Who do you say that I am? This question, I imagine, is a little quieter for a second. At first, who do men say I am? They're all throwing out options. John the Baptist, Elijah, who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter speaks up. Simon the Bold. <laughs> he answers and says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. You're the Christ. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were in Matthew chapter 1, and we looked at the word Christ, what it means. It means anointed one, Messiah. This is the first time that the disciples used the word Christ themselves in Matthew. But what's interesting is this is not the first time that Jesus has been recognized as Messiah. In fact, in John 1.14, when Peter's brother Andrew introduces Peter to, to, to Jesus, and he runs and he finds him, and he says, we have found the Messiah. They've already connected that in their mind. So Peter's saying here, you are the Christ. You're the anointed one. You're the Messiah. But then he goes a step, forward, for, a step further. He says, you are the Son of the living God. You're the Son of the living God. It's interesting, just, just a few weeks ago, as I mentioned, we were in Matthew 1, we looked at the, the title Christ Jesus. And you remember in that passage they say, uh, in fact, I'll just turn over there real quick, in Matthew 1, and the angel uh, is, in verse 21, the angel talking to Joseph says, and she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's Messiah. He's the Savior. But then in verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. It's the connection of those two names. Jesus, who will save his people from their sins. Messiah and Emmanuel, God with us. As you'll see here in a second, that, that connection in Peter's mind, that is what Christ says, Blessed are you. God has revealed this to you. He's the son of the living God, the, the living God that highlights God's power, God's uniqueness. Now remember where they are standing. They're, they're standing at near Caesarea Philippi, probably at the foot of this cliff where there's this temple. There's this shrine to the god Pan. You're the son of the living God. You're the son of the real God, the powerful God, the unique God. Verse 17, Jesus responds to this confession. Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. 
The amazing aspect of Peter's confession is identifying Jesus' role, his Savior, with his identity as the Son of God. You see, that wasn't, always necessar- that wasn't always necessarily clear in the Old Testament. With a few exceptions, there were not many who expected Messiah to be God's Son, God himself. And Peter makes this connection. You are the Christ, you're the Messiah, you're the Anointed One, the Promised One, and you're the Son of the Living God. You're God Himself. Up to this point in Matthew, Jesus had never explicitly taught Peter and the apostles his full identity. He made allusions to it. He'd done miracles, has testified to it. But Peter here jumps to, to this conclusion Himself. This is not something that Jesus has, has, has led him to say. He jumps to this, to this conclusion. He says what no one else is willing to say to this point. And he does it by the Father's leading. My Father who is in heaven, He has revealed this to you. Verse 18, this is really where I kind of want to focus this evening for a second here. And I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I'll build my church. It's the first mention of the church in the New Testament. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not of Hades will not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It's an interesting note here in verse 18. There's a play on words that we don't get in the English. Many of you probably already know this, but it says, you are Peter, Petros, small rock, and on this Petra, on this rock, on this foundation stone, I will build my church. So I'll have debate over this specific passage. What does Christ mean when he says, on this rock, I will build my church? What is this rock? What is this foundation? Catholic Church has taken this and run with it. And they say, well, it's Peter, and he's the first pope. And they build this huge theology of the pope, the papacy off of this. That's not at all what this is saying. Some people react to that and say, well, it can't be Peter, so it must be the confession of who Christ is, that he is the Christ, he's the Son of the living God. While that's theologically true, I I don't think that's the best answer here. Some people say, well, it's Christ himself. He's saying, you are Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I think the best answer, the most logical answer, the, the, the answer that is the most simple that Peter and those who were sitting there would have understood was this. I say unto you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. I think it is, I think he is referring to Peter. I think he's referring to Peter and the other apostles. You are the foundation on which I will build this church. I think you see that in Ephesians. 
where we just were. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2 again. Verses 19 to 20. What does he say here? Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. But who's the foundation? The apostles and the prophets. They serve a unique role in this church. I think you see that even in Acts. I know one of the Sunday school classes is going through Acts. You see that even in Acts, as, as, as Peter goes, and at Pentecost, Peter preaches, and the Spirit comes, and then, and then he goes to the Gentiles, and the Spirit comes. He has the keys to the kingdom. But what you do not see in this passage is the extreme lengths to which the Catholic Church takes this. There's no Pope here. There's a foundation. There's a beginning. There's a gift. You're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. I want to look at each one of those words. I will build my church. Notice that first word, I. Who will build the church? I. Who's speaking? Christ. Christ will build the church. He doesn't say, you are Peter, and on this rock, you will build the church. He says, I will build it. You're the foundation. I will use you and the other apostles as this foundation, but I will build it. Next, will. I will. It's future. It's not come yet. This is not something that's already been around. This is something new that is coming. I will do this. Secondly, build. It's a process. It's going to take time, but I will do it. My. Whose church is it? It's Christ's church. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's Christ's church, and He will build it. And that last word, church, called out one's assembly. A lot of times we just read over this, but imagine the apostles sitting there. What, what would they think of when they hear the word church? You know, they, they probably just think of the 12 of them sitting there. Well, we're, we're an assembly. We're, we're called out. God's called us. They, they, they couldn't have pictured what God had in mind, what God was going to do. It is my church, and I will build it. It is coming. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Gates of Hades is the idea of death. Even death itself will not prevail over this church. You guys may die. You may pass away. But the church will not. It will go on. What's interesting, I, I don't know how true this is, so I wouldn't put a lot of stock into this. But I, I mentioned a couple weeks ago the opportunity that I had to go uh, to Israel one, one Christmas break. And I remember when we visited, 
this place. We're standing there, and you can see the, the cliff, and you can see the little uh, cutouts where they have their little idols in there. And you can see the place where the water is, is coming out of this cave. It's, it's more like a trickle now. It used to gush, but now it's more like a trickle. And our guide, a, a, who's a Christian, a Jew who lived in the area, who's a believer, he was telling us, he said, back in this time, this cave, they viewed it as an entrance to the underworld. It was an entrance to the underworld. And Pan and, and these other gods and their thinking during winter would go down into the underworld and then they'd come back out in spring. I don't know why they would, but that's, that's what they view. And so then he goes, now think of this. Christ is saying the gates of Hades, the gates of death will not prevail. And he's standing at what this pagan worship views as an entrance to the underworld. He's standing in a place where, where paganism rules and he says, they will not prevail. I don't know if that part of it is necessarily true, but what I do know is that the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. I do know that death itself cannot beat the church because death the self could, itself could not beat the Lord of the church. Because Christ has risen, we will rise. Death has no power over him. Death has no power over his church. We've looked at Matthew 28, the Great Commission over the last year. In this next passage, verse 19, he says, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I will give you authority. I will give you authority. It is my church. I will make sure it prospers. The gates of hell will not itself prevail against it. And I will give you authority. And what does he say in the Great Commission? starts out, all authority has been given to me, therefore, go. He gives that authority. All authority has been given to me. I have conquered. And therefore, you in authority, go. And we see in Acts, as they go, the Spirit comes. And the church is founded and the church goes forth. And it does conquer. And it does prevail, even to this day. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. The time's not yet right here. It's not right. It might cause confusion. So don't go and don't tell. But in conclusion, here's these truths. Christ promises to build his church. It is his church and he will build it. And he promises power and authority to this church. And at this time, they could not fathom what all God had in plan. They had no idea what Christ was saying. Their plans, when they hear that, was probably so small compared to what God has in view. And now we have the privilege to look back at what God has done over these last over 2,000 years. And we can look back to this passage 
And we can say, God is faithful. He is faithful. He is powerful. His church has prevailed, not because of us, but because of Him. And that is the encouragement for us from this passage, is that the power of the church is in the Lord of the church. It's not in you and I. This church will not thrive, will not accomplish its purpose in our strength. It's His church. He will accomplish His purpose in us. May we be willing. May we be open to His leading. So here, in Matthew 16, we have the first introduction to the church. The church is promised. And what a glorious thing this church is. Let's close with a word of prayer before we transition. Father, we praise you this evening as we are gathered here as a local assembly, the local church, just a little part of what you are doing globally, and we glory in who you are and what you are doing. Your church has conquered. It has prevailed. The gospel is going forth. It is your church, and it will prevail. Give us faith to trust you, to continue to do what you've called us to do, that you may be glorified in the church. We pray all in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.